Hello, and welcome to A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall, a ministry of Calvary Chapel San Juan Capistrano. Open your Bible and join us, as together we seek to grow in our daily walk with the Lord. In Romans chapter 9, we've been considering together God's sovereign purpose and plan for the nation of Israel. However, there were those who would read Paul's epistle, and they would suggest that if all that Paul had written was true, then it appeared that the promises that God made to Israel in the past would no longer be fulfilled. With so many of the Jews rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, what future could they have if Paul was accurate in his assessment? Paul's response to that question, was God done with the Jewish people, was to point out that God has always sovereignly been in control of the situation. And he wasn't taken by surprise by the nation's rebellion or their rejection of his one and only son. And to prove this point concerning God's sovereignty, Paul launched into a history lesson wherein he revealed God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. First of all, he looked at Abraham and Sarah and how that they wavered in their faith and they tried to present their own plan to God in the form of Ishmael. But God didn't receive the work of their flesh. In fact, he chose Isaac over Ishmael because that was God's plan. Even though they had failed, God was still in control. Then the apostle reminded his readers of how that Isaac attempted to do something similar in that he tried to give the blessing to his older son Esau when the Lord actually had selected before they were born that Jacob, the younger son, was to receive the blessing. God's purpose would come to pass. He sovereignly selected Jacob instead of his older brother Esau because that was God's plan. Then Paul looked back at the nation of Israel, how at one time they were in bondage in Egypt and the Pharaoh was unwilling to let the people go. And yet once again, God's plan came to pass in that Moses triumphed over Pharaoh because God is in control. Finally, there was the example given to us of the potter with the clay. And Paul cited how that the potter has power and sovereignty over the clay to make it what it is that he desires to make it. He has a design in mind, and as he puts his hands upon the clay, he forms and shapes it, and in the same way, the Lord is the potter, and the nation of Israel was the clay. The emphasis, again, being that God is in control. Folks, can I just say to you this morning that I am grateful that God is in control of all things. He's in control of my life. I don't always know what it is that he's up to or what it is that he's shaping or how it is he's going to use this or exactly where he's leading me, but I'm confident that he's in control and he knows exactly what he's doing. Now in verse 30, Paul continues this line of reasoning about God's plan for the Jewish people that he wasn't done with them. And in verse 30, he asks a rhetorical question and then he answers the question that he asks 
by drawing another comparison and contrast, this time between the Jews and the Gentiles. Look at what it says. Here's the question. What shall we say then? That is, to everything that I've just presented to you concerning the sovereignty of God and his divine election. What, what are we going to say to all of that? And here's what he says. That the Gentiles, that is those who aren't Jews, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. One group did not pursue it, and they found it. Another group was pursuing it and did not receive it. What does Paul refer to here? He's referring to the righteousness of faith versus the law of righteousness. Two separate things. The Gentiles, first of all, did not pursue righteousness, but they attained it. How? He answers the question. I love this. The answer is, well, why did that happen in verse 32? And then he gives us the answer. He says, here's the reason. Because they did not seek it by faith, as it were, but by the works of the law. They stumbled at the stumbling stone. The Gentiles, when they learned of what Jesus had done for them, how that Jesus had died for their sins, how that Jesus had risen again from the dead, how that salvation was a gift of God's grace, not to be earned, but to be received. When they heard that, they responded in faith to the message of the gospel, and guess what they received? What they attained, the righteousness that comes through faith. They received it. They realized salvation cannot be earned. But on the other hand, the Jews, they sought to earn their salvation by their works, by the keeping of the law. But the law couldn't make them righteous. The law can never make us righteous. The law simply points out that I am unrighteous. I look at the law and I realized I've broken it. But when I realize that I've broken it, it drives me to the Savior who is able to save me. But sadly... The Jews rejected Jesus. The Bible says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. They did not believe in him. In fact, it says here, they actually stumbled over him. To the Gentiles, Jesus was a rock that they could build their lives upon. But to the Jews, Jesus was a stumbling stone. Paul then quotes a combination of Old Testament passages here from Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah 28 in verse 33. He says, as it is written... He's referring to the Old Testament. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. When Jesus came, the Jews were offended at Jesus, did not believe in Jesus, but still whoever believes on him will not be ashamed. Folks, listen carefully. There are plenty of people today in this world, who falsely assume that they are going to heaven because they are good people. And their standard of goodness is one that they have developed when comparing themselves, perhaps, to other people who, in their opinion, are not good. 
They would never think for a moment that they would be going to hell or on the receiving end of God's judgment because they're good people. At the same time, many of those same people don't believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. They might say he's one of many ways. And the sad thing is, those same people live with a false sense of security. They are not saved. They are not on their way to heaven. Our goodness could never be good enough. Our righteousness through our attempts to be kind to people or to do good deeds or attending a Christmas service or Easter or putting together a shoebox for children or whatever it is that we do could never save us because you attended a religious school or you went through a program or you were born an American. Not one of those things can save your soul from eternal separation from God. There is only one thing, one person who can save our soul, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him exclusively. He's the only way. But to many people, including the Jews, they found that to be offensive. What about you here today? Are you living with a false sense of security? If today were your last day on this earth, do you know that you would be going to heaven? Do you have that assurance that when you take your last breath here, You'll take your first breath in heaven and you will hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Do you know for certain to be absent from your body is to be immediately present with the Lord? Do you have that assurance? Friend, you can. The Bible says these things we've written to you that you might know that you have eternal life. Romans chapter 9 teaches us about divine election and the sovereignty of God with Israel. But now, as we move from chapter 9, looking at God's past dealing with the nation of Israel, we move into chapter 10, and we're talking now about God's present relationship to the nation of Israel, and we learn about human responsibility and free will. At least five times in this chapter, Paul alludes to the free will of man, the responsibility of man in making a decision for or against God. Again, let me state this clearly. We believe in the sovereignty of God, the predestination, election. We believe that because the Bible teaches it. But we also believe that man has a free will and needs to exercise his responsibility. Chapter 9, clearly, the election, it's stated. Chapter 10, keep reading the free will of man. The Bible teaches both. It is a paradox to you and me, but not in heaven, but to us. It's a paradox, but it's perfectly clear in heaven. So we teach what the Bible says. God is sovereign and man has a responsibility. Someone was asked one time, how do you reconcile those two things? You don't need to reconcile friends. They're friends. The Bible teaches both and thus we teach both. Well, chapter 10 begins with Paul's heartfelt prayer for his people. Look at verse 1, chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted 
to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You may recall that at the beginning of Romans 9, that Paul mentioned the burden that he had for his people. In fact, he said that his conscience was bearing him witness that he had great sorrow and continual grief in his heart for the Jews. In fact, he said, if it were possible, he wished that he himself could be cut off, or the word is accursed, separated from God, so that his people could be saved. He had a burden for the people. And he states it a second time here in the 10th chapter, saying that it was his heartfelt desire and prayer that Israel would be saved. He didn't just have a desire to see them saved. He prayed for them to be saved. He interceded for them. He pleaded with God that they would come to salvation. Folks, it's one thing to know people who are not saved and have a desire. I, you know, I would hope someday that they would you know, get saved. It's quite another thing to get on your knees personally and pray for their salvation on a regular basis. Folks, we need to be praying for the lost. That's what we need to be doing, praying for people who aren't saved, praying for people who are going to hell. You know people, I know people who are not ready to meet the Lord. And we need to pray for them that they would be saved. Listen, listen carefully. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody prayed for me. And I am eternally grateful for those prayers that have been answered. And I give God all the praise and all the glory. But do you pray for people? You have a desire for people to get saved? That's wonderful. Let it lead you to action and intercession and prayer. Think about this. Every time Paul went into a city to minister, remember the first place he went? A synagogue. Who hangs out in synagogues? Jews. And why, why speak to them? Because Paul had a heart for them. And he would pull from the Old Testament scriptures proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And they would listen. And a lot of times they'd kick him out. And then he'd go to the Gentiles and he'd set up a church and establish it with them. But he, he always had a heart for them. And he always was longing to see them saved. The church needs to be praying for people who are lost. Who are you praying for this morning? Paul then gives a description and a diagnosis of their problem. And he knew this problem well because it was the same problem he had. He knew all about these people because he was just like them before he was converted. And so he knew how to pray and he knew what they were like. But here's the problem. This is why they rejected Jesus. Notice their reasons. In verse 1 he says, I bear them witness. Here's what they have. They do have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Oh, they're zealous. That's for sure. They're zealous for religion, but their knowledge is incomplete. The Jewish people were extremely zealous as it relates to religious practice and tradition. Following their Babylonian captivity, when they were brought back into the land of Israel, they were determined never to be swept up again in idolatry, in serving other gods. And so they had sought to keep the law. They had developed a certain code and traditions that they were zealous to keep. The problem was they felt that that was their standard of righteousness. Zeal can be a good thing, but zeal without knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Without knowledge means they didn't have a complete understanding. What they knew was insufficient, and it led them astray from attaining a means of salvation that was available only through Christ. They had zeal, 
They were religious. And they were so religious. Let me just give you one example. Jesus, you remember at one point, he exhorted the religious leaders and he said, you know, you're so dedicated that you tithe out of your spices. You probably have a spice cabinet at home with spices. And they had spices and they were so committed to not breaking any, they would give a few spices to the Lord. You know, how many? A tenth of their spices to the Lord and the rest they would keep for themselves. It was just... That's ridiculous, but we just, we're serious about this. They were so meticulous that if a Pharisee was walking down the street and it just so happened that a gnat flew into his mouth, a gnat had blood in it, not very much, but enough that you violated. So these guys, it was not uncommon to see them ah, gagging on the side of the road to make sure they can extract the blood from that gnat lest they break God's law. You think, just eat it. Just eat it. Don't worry about it, you know? But that's how meticulous they were. So religious, so committed to these, these things, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law. They had a standard of righteousness. And Jesus said to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That must have come as a shock to them. But it was all outward. There was zeal for religion, but no knowledge of real righteousness that comes by faith. And this zeal without knowledge led them to be willfully ignorant of God's righteousness. That's what it says in verse 3. They're ignorant of God's righteousness and... They seek to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted to the righteousness of God. So they're ignorant of it, which has led them to then establish their own form of righteousness, which in turn, if you boil it all down, they haven't submitted to the righteousness of God. In other words, I've established my own religious practice. This is the way I'm going to live. Don't judge me. This is, how, this is what I think. Not what God says necessarily, but what I think. I can't tell you how many people that I run into on a regular basis who are just like that. They have established their own form of righteousness, their own road, their own path they've carved out for themselves that they think is going to lead to heaven, but it's not leading to heaven. Here's the thing. They pull from all different practices and religious things. I'll take a little bit of Hinduism. I'll take a little bit of Buddhism. I'll take a little bit of, uh, you know, whatever else I want to take. And then I'll sprinkle a little Jesus on it. And I'll stir it up. And I'll, this is what I have. It's unacceptable to God. It's your own form of righteousness. It's your own religious establishment that you've created that God doesn't acknowledge. Listen, friend, if you and me could get to heaven any other way, through our goodness, through our own established righteousness, then Jesus Christ died in vain. There is no reason for him to bleed on our behalf and die and resurrect if you and me could get there somehow on our own. The fact is we can't. And that's why he came. There are those who assume that they're going to heaven because they are spiritual. Those individuals have established their own righteousness. There are those who think that they're going to heaven because they go to church. Although it's wonderful to go to church, it doesn't save you. There are those that assume that they are going to heaven because of this particular 
nonprofit organization they're involved with and they're sending. Listen, none of those things save you and me. There is a righteousness which is according to God and a righteousness that is according to man. One is acceptable and the other isn't. The ignorance of God's righteousness led them to establishing their own personal definition and practice of righteousness. But in reality, they had not submitted to the righteousness of God. And what is the righteousness that's available? Look at verse 4, please. It says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to who? For, for who? To everybody who what? Believes. Believes. Not works for, not earns, not tries to be worthy of, but simply believes. Listen, Jesus Christ, he said, I didn't come to break the law, I came to fulfill the law. And he did. He fulfilled it in his life, first of all, because he lived a sinless, perfect life. Thus, he fulfilled the law. And not only did he fulfill the law in his life, but he also fulfilled the demands of the law in his death. He was the perfect sacrifice. And he died in our place, accomplishing for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. He fulfilled the law. By faith, I trust in what he did for me on the cross. And now, by faith, I am in him, the one who fulfilled the law. The end of the law for righteousness is to everyone who believes. He fulfilled the requirements on my behalf. And by believing in what he did, I am now declared righteous in the sight of God. Oh, not because of John Randall's righteousness. He doesn't have any. It's the righteousness of Jesus that has been imparted to me. What he did for me on my behalf. Paul presents another contrast between the law of righteousness and the righteousness of faith, and he does so by masterfully stringing together, once again, a series of Old Testament passages to prove his point. The reason why he goes back to the Old Testament is because that's what they believed in. He used their own scriptures to confound them. You can't argue with what you say you believe if it's very clear within the text. And so he goes back to the Old Testament, and the first thing he does, he quotes in verse 5, he quotes from Leviticus chapter 18, which were the words of Moses. And so he says, let's, let's look at the law for a second. Let's talk about the law of righteousness, first of all. What did Moses say about the law of righteousness? Here's what he said. In Leviticus 18, it says, the man who does these things, or does those things concerning the law, shall live by them. If you're going to Seek to be righteous according to the law, then you're going to have to live by the law. And which means you're going to have to keep the law. Listen, you're, you can try it. You're going to have to keep the law perfectly 100% of the time. You're going to have to be perfect to, to be right. You, you can try. It's impossible. But if you want to do that, go ahead. If you're establishing your own righteousness, in essence, what you're saying is, I gotta, I'm, gonna li I'm living a perfect life. Now, you might not think that in your mind. Oh, I'm not perfect. I'm not saying that. Well, listen, if you're thinking that you've established your own righteousness and the laws that you've kind of put in place, that's basically what you're doing. It's impossible. But if you're going to live by the law, you could try it, but you'll fail. That's what the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10. It says this. For whoever shall keep the whole law but stumble in one point is guilty of the whole law. Do you understand what that means? 
The person that says, I live by the Ten Commandments. Have you ever broken one? Well, once, I think, maybe. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I, I pretty much, no, you have. Then guess what that means? You've broken the whole law. It's all tied together. You are guilty. One sin is enough to keep you out of heaven. One. And we've all committed a lot more than one. So the person that says, I'm going to live by the law, what does the law say? The law says you got to keep it perfectly. And if you can't do that, guess what? You're out. You're not getting in. You can't do it. But that's, that's what the law says. Oh, but now he goes back to the Old Testament again, and he says, but this is what faith says. This is what the law says. Moses represents the law. This is what he said. Well, let's see what faith says. What does faith speak? It says, if you look at the very next verse, he's now quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30, another Old Testament passage. This is, this is the righteousness of faith, verse 6, speaks this way. This is what Moses said. This is what the righteousness of faith says. Don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Verse 8, what does it say? Here's what faith says. The word is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. The law says, good luck. Try it out. See how far you get. It's, it's built in failure. We can't do it. Where faith says, you don't have to go to the heights of heaven to try to figure this out. You don't have to go to the depths of the abyss. It's near you. In other words, it's accessible. Well, how near is it? Your mouth, your heart, it's right there. It's accessible. It's available to you. You don't have to try to earn it. You don't have to try to Conquer something in order to achieve it. It's right there. It's near you. You don't have to go to heaven to try to find Christ or into the world of the dead, the abyss. He's near. In other words, the gospel of Christ, this word of faith is available. It's accessible. The sinner doesn't need to perform some difficult work in order to be saved. What he has to do, what she has to do is simply this. Are you ready for this? Trust what Christ did. Believe it. That's what faith says. Faith says believe it. The law says keep it. Try it. See if you can make it. I can't. By the way, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's perfect. It's me. It's not you. It's me. I can't, I can't keep it. But faith says believe it. And you can receive it. The law says try and earn it. You'll fail. Faith says believe it. It's yours. Notice what the next verse says. It ties it in perfectly. Verse 9, that if, remember, it's near your, it's your mouth and your heart. If you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, look at the promise. You will be saved. For with the heart, it speaks not just of the, of the organ in your body that's pumping your blood. It's talking about the emotions, the will, when it speaks of the heart. With the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. And the scripture says, whoever, here it is again, believes on him will be saved. Thanks for joining us today for A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall. You'll find us online at adailywalk.org. That's a good place for resources to help you grow in your daily walk. If you'd like prayer or have questions or comments you'd like to share with us, our email is adailywalk at gmail.com. 
You can also reach us by phone at 877-242-0828. That's 877-242-0828. To watch today's message again or any message you may have missed in the series, download our free app. Simply search CCSJC. Be sure to stay tuned with Pastor John on Instagram at John P. Randall and on Twitter at PJRandall7. Make sure to join us next time when we'll again open the Word together seeking to apply God's truth to your daily walk.